Once I thought everything has a soul. Then I learned only the fool fears the tree. It is empty. So to the wind that sends it which way and that. Now I know God is such a wind from which we are rent. The heavens take the tree from the tree, leaf by leaf. Being gone, taken, is what means heaven. It is full of wings, a music of what is missing, since nothing but men have souls, though it appears not many. That was poet Kevin Young reading Ash Wednesday, a poem from his new book, Ardency, a chronicle of the Amistad rebels. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Born in 1970, Kevin Young has been called the poet of his generation. He's written six full-length books of poetry, most with a unifying theme. He uses and extends elements from film, art, and fiction. His book, Black Mariah, for example, is film noir in verse. But his interplay with music and musical themes runs like a line throughout all his poetry. His book of poems to repel ghosts, The Remix, is labeled as a double album. In Jelly Roll, a blues, Young draws his inspiration from a wide range of music, Dixieland, Cantata, Rhapsody, and, of course, variations of the blues. In his latest book, Ardency, Young gives us a history of the famous Amistad Rebellion and subsequent trial in a chorus of voices. He conjures a mixture of history and music, interweaving spirituals, halting in eloquent English spoken in African voices, lamentations, and the formal words of 19th century grammar texts. The result is a monumental work that in beautiful and searing language reveals much about the complexities of American history. Kevin Young has won many awards, including fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. He teaches creative writing and English at Emory University. I recently spoke to Kevin Young at the Association of Writers and Writing Programs Conference in Washington, D.C. Ardency had just been published, and I asked Kevin to tell me about it. It is uh, a long poem, an epic poem, about the Amistad Rebellion uh, in 1839 that took place off the coast of Cuba led by Cinque and um, the men, mostly men, uh, from the many people of East Africa, Sierra Leone, were involved in the rebellion. And uh, the ship Amistad then rerouted by night. They tried to sort of steer east toward the rising sun and the would-be slave owners um, who they had spared because they didn't know how to navigate would steer by night through, using the stars trying to get back to some shore. And um, they ended up off Long Island, funny enough. They traveled all the way and wound their way up where U.S. sailors found them, and they were thrown in jail, and they were trying to decide, you know, whose property were they, essentially. Um, but abolitionists took up the case, and they argued it, including John Quincy Adams, who helped argue it in front of the Supreme Court, that they should be free. So it was such an important American case, but it was also an international one. How did you decide to write about the Amistad Rebellion? poems evolve. I mean, I don't feel like they ch I choose them. They just can't come to me. In the case of Ardency, I was, just came across, you know, I can't believe, but it was 20 years ago, these letters written by the Amistad from jail. 
the Amistads, I should say they were often referred to by that name. And um, I was really struck by the power of their words and uh, the eloquence of what they said and of what they didn't say and of what they couldn't say. Um, they weren't able to say, you know, get me out of here immediately. They, were, they had to sort of both plead their case and also um, in some ways they prevailed upon a kind of uh, liberation theology that they had, in a way, created, I feel like. Um, you can see in the letters them taking the teachings they were given by the abolitionists who sort of at the same time converted them to Christianity and then also taught them English. So there was a simultaneity of that. And also they're in jail. So there's, it seems so, so symbolic to me of a kind of larger African-American experience. Um, and they were able to speak about what's happening to them without saying it in many ways. And I think that's a really a powerful art. And it's so interesting because when you think about language can conceal as much as it reveals. Absolutely. Especially the vernacular. I think yeah. African-American vernacular English is so much tied up in that. I don't think I was very conscious of that when I first uh, was writing the poems. But, um, you know, I think looking back, that's what struck me. Um, I was really just blown away by their language and their inventiveness. And you can see it in some of the poems, I think. Well, would you read sure. for us, please? Sure. It's a big book, so it can be hard to um, pick what to read, but maybe I'll read this first letter written by, well, he's actually a young boy named Kale, and he learned English fairly quickly, and um, this is a letter he wrote. It's called Westville, uh, which is the name of where he's writing from, and um, it's dated October 30th, 1840. It's addressed to uh, Lewis Tappan, who was one of the chief abolitionists and supporters of the case. Westville. Dear Sir, Mr. Tappan, I want to tell you something. I'm going to write you a letter. I will write you a few lines, my friend. I am began to write you a letter. I bless you because I love you. I want pray for you every night and every morning and evening, and I want love you too much. I will write letter for you from that time. Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. My dear friend, I thanks you a plenty because you send me a letter, and I thank you for it. And I want pray for you every evening and every night and every morning by day and by night and his always. Mr. Tappan, love us. Pray our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be. I want to tell you something. I have no hat. Dear sir, I write you, if you please, and so kind I please you, that I please you, let me have a hat to cover my head, that I please you, dear friend, I tell you something, I please you, that you have, let me a Bible. And my friend, I want you give me a hat, and I thank you a plenty, and I have no Bible, and hat both. My friend, I give you good loves, I believe you are my friend, my sir, I want you tell your friends my good loves. I want love all teachers who teach me and all my people good things about Jesus Christ, God, and heaven, and everything. I bless them that teach me good. I pray for them. I want write some, your name. That kingdom come, that will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive. Forgive our debtors, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. O Lord. My friend, I write this paper to you because I love you too much. My sir, I want to tell you something. 
When we in Havana vessel, we have no water to drink. When we eat rice, white man no give us to drink. When sun set, white men give us little water. When we in Havana vessel, white men give rice to all who no eat. Fast he take whip you. A plenty of them died, and Havana men take them put in water. I try to write letter of paper for Mr. Yu. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. My friend, I am stop writing your letter. Gone to you a letter. My name, Kale, I am your friend. I give you this letter. The repetition that moves throughout that is, is very, very powerful, as is the language itself. And it's so visual, Kevin. Well, you can see, uh, you can see this young boy writing this mm-hmm. thing. And what he's saying, you know, give me a hat. I lo- that's so heartbreaking. Um, it's such a simple, strange, but necessary request. Imagine being in the colds of Connecticut, you know, for the first time. But also, it's almost all seems prefaced to that last part where he starts talking about being in Havana and Vessel and what it means to have been sort of stolen and sold uh, illegal, I might add. The international slave trade was illegal then, but it was, of course, still going on. And just it's sort of a form of testimony that requires all that other, not just pleading, but uh, uh, the other kind of declaration. There's something that he's saying to me that's somewhat conflating Tappan and this God he started hearing about. But then also um, saying something really powerful there at the end about you know, no man who holds his hand to the plow and turns back. You know, it's almost as if a kind of um, wrestling with this idea of who's fit to be saved and who's not, um, that I think is really powerful. I wonder if there's a way that poetry like yours reveals history in a way that a straight historical narrative doesn't, if it reveals the truth behind the facts. You know, one hopes in some way. I mean, I guess but that's not my goal writing the book. I think I wanted to say what they had to say, you know, and see what they had to say. Um, some of which they had said already, and some of which was just imagining and identifying with the feelings of being in a strange land, in a strange time, um, in a strange tongue. You know, and I thought that alienation, maybe you can maybe feel in some way, and certainly um, I hope in the poems you can feel. There's a musicality in your poems there's a rhythm. It's almost like the rhythm of somebody talking. Sure. Well, for me, uh, I was always interested in the rhythm rather than, say, the meter. I mean, to me, the spoken aspect of speech is what determines the line to me, or rather the line sometimes determines the speech. Um, So I was really interested in the music, the phraseology, if you will, Mm -hmm. of the line. And um, it's something I try to drum into my students. And also having studied with Denise Levertov, the poet, who really writes about organic form and the nature of the line and the line break and likens it to the musical score. That the page, she used to say, the page is a score over and over again. And I think um, between those two ideas of listening and the sort of lineage of um, the poem as a spoken thing, I think that's where some of my line comes from. Your poems have a way of wedding music and history. 
Well, I, I hope so. I mean, I think that the question of sort of music and history, I think, is so important to understanding the poem as an idea, but also us as people in the world. And it's sort of what I turn to to help understand the world when it feels it's falling apart. Music soothes one. It, it brings one through things. Um, at least it has for me. And um, it's also provided a structure, I guess, for me, for my own poetic music. You know, it's interesting because you think of music and you think of music as being the expression of the inexpressible in some ways. Sure. And the thing that's so tricky about poetry is that poetry does the same thing, only poetry really does need to find the words. <laughs> right. Or at least find the form. You know, in many ways, I feel like the um, form carries so much of the weight in a poem, obviously. But um, I think we sometimes forget that. And certainly my students starting out, I try to get them aware of the big structure, how it can solve a lot of the problems that if you feel like you're just trying to get a word down, you can get lost in the, the weeds or the, the forest or the trees. And uh, I don't know. I really think it's an important thing to keep in mind, at least for me. And, you know, especially with this new book, Ardency, I was really interested in using the form, that big structure, to help rein in this large thing about America and um, faith and violence, all these kind of big questions. It really required me to have this kind of form throughout. So it has all these sort of sevens and threes in it. You know, it has uh, the first section's 21 poems, the second section's 14 poems, and then I really wanted sort of seven big sections for the last libretto section. And then it got violated, of course, because I had these sonnet sequence at the end. So, uh, you know, I was always really interested in that use of numbers in order to kind of help me think about this process. When did you first decide that you wanted a writing life, or how did that life come to you? Brutally, and uh, <laughs> it's one of those things, you you know, you're, it's like being called to something. It's a vacation. You don't have a choice, really. Funny enough, I literally just saw um, my first writing teacher from when I was 13, just literally uh, here at the conference. It was terrific to see him. I, we've kept in touch over the years, but you know, I was literally 13, took a class. His name's Tom Averill, and uh, this was in Topeka, Kansas. We, we took, I took a summer class, and you know, we had to um, write little stories and little poems and things. And um, he was just reminding me, I, had, I wrote a, a poem which I would describe as awful, about uh, a tomb in an Egyptian sort of mythology. So I suppose I was always working out <laughs> history or something. But I remember he would pass back the poems that he maybe liked or thought worth discussing without your name on them, like the next day, like someone would type them up. And um, that was almost more of a thrill than if it had your name on it, because it was like a secret thrill. And I think that that kind of taught me something that I didn't feel ready to let go of. And so I just really kept writing and writing. But of course, I didn't realize I was preparing for a writing life. I thought that's what you would do. If you could make a poem, why wouldn't anyone want to? I think I thought. And it was really only after I had sort of probably written half of what the poems that became my first book that I became comfortable or started to think of myself as a poet, even though I just had to tell these stories about my family in that case in Louisiana and how my parents had grown up and how my grandparents had to. Stories about the old days. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and people always were coming up to me and saying, how did you know that? Or, um, and I think that's why I think I felt comfortable being able to write about the Amistad in some way. It's because I could, there was always this active imagination and identification in one's writing. 
why poetry rather than fiction? Because I could see you going in either direction. Yeah, I, I chose uh, poetry for the money, actually. Oh, yeah. I uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, guess I picked the wrong on that. Um, no, honestly, I think I had a poet poet's temperament. I would sit down to write a story and I would get to the first page and I would want every word to be right and significant and have weight. And I think that's part of it. And some of it's just the music. I love that about the poem. And you mentioned this with your, your first poem, the Egyptian poem. Many of them have this play between myth and history. You hmm. seem to sort of like sure. towing around that intersection. Talk about that a little bit. <laughs> I think it's just part of the writing. I mean, in this book, Ardency, I was really interested in getting the history right so I could talk about, I guess, the music of the moment more and um, the emotion of it. So I, I really wanted a kind of accuracy in it, but I also called it a chronicle because I wanted to have that feel of almost like um, those New World chronicles that people wrote where they said, you know, there's a tribe over there that has four heads or, you know, there are you know, some strange kind of imaginings that seem to me so tied up in the New World. And uh, that kind of idea of a whole hemisphere of magical strangeness, I think, lurks behind the idea of a chronicle. So that's not here exactly, but I wanted it kind of echoed. And uh, I guess I also just wanted the operatic quality of the experience. So that, to me, um, meant I, I conceived of Cinque's long section as a libretto, but also, I guess, speaks to this idea of, if not myth, then history as a big H you know, this could be jumping the gun, but do you think about this as an opera? Often, literally? yeah, and I've thought about, I've talked to people about working on that, so hopefully one of these days something will happen like that. You've had performances on your mind in the past. I mean, your book, Black Mariah, film noir in verse, and the jacket says produced and directed by Kevin Young. It's on there somewhere. <laughs> well, and that became a play not through my workings, but through the Providence Black Repertory Company, and I was so pleased that they did that and moved as well. Uh, it was a strange experience to sit in the audience and hear your own words read or spoken by, and sometimes chorally by these people on stage in ways I would have never imagined. And half the time I was like, I wrote that? <laughs> you know. Um, and I feel like they really pulled out the humor at times in the book and then also the dark uh, sort of undertow at times. You know, poetry to me seems one of the most paradoxical of all the art forms because on one hand, it's the most interior, I think, and the most solitary, and at the other hand, it often has a quality of performance because mm. there's readings, mm. and it requires two impulses at once. That's well said. I think so. Um, I often find that the books I think of as private books are more public for people, and the books I think of as public are often quieter and more personal in some ways. So I think even for writers, they don't always know what is going to connect. You know, um, I had a recent poem uh, published about hearing my son's heartbeat for the first time uh, in utero, and um, I've been struck by how people responded to the poem in a personal way, you know, because it seemed sort of personal for me, but then it was public. I don't know. It always had this mix of feelings, um, and um, I think you're right that poems are often jostling between these poles. Did you have a moment when you were reading something and you looked at the page and it was this moment of having a writer make you realize what words could do. Yeah, um, I think the first book I really 
loved in that particular way. I mean, I, I was in Kansas, a kid in Kansas trying to read uh, poems. So I would go into the bookstore, which was like a B. Dalton kind of, you know, almost like airport-like bookstore, and um, just get whatever they had, you know. And so I read very eclectically, which I think has served me well in some way, just even as a teacher. I would read very sort of what was ever was on the shelf that was new or I, new to me. But at a certain point, I came across Thomas and Beulah by Rita Dove, and that was such an important book. I remember reading in a magazine, I think it might have been Essence magazine, my mother's uh, subscription to that, she had won the uh, Pulitzer Prize. And I thought, how come no one had come to my house and told me that this uh, black woman had won the Pulitzer Prize? And um, so I ordered the book, I think, and um, reading it really taught me a lot about history and also personal history and how to interweave those two and the drama of language, I suppose. Earlier today, I was a little surprised when another poet said to me that in college, she never liked taking literature classes. She took a lot of history because she felt literature classes made her look at writing as a critic rather than as a creative person. I wonder what you think about that. Well, I, I don't know if I agree necessarily. I can see why some would say that. I try to read as a reader and also read as a writer. I mean, they're not so different. One has to sometimes sit down and say, what do I like? You know, it's really hard to write uh, a good review, for instance. A bad review, it's pretty easy to say, but it's hard to say what works really well about this thing. And Because you, then you're also a little bit exposed that I like, uh, you know, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Um, you know, and this is why, you know, it's hard to name the possibilities or the, the ways things work for you. Mm-hmm. I do think that from teaching creative writing classes and teaching poems in there, that students often are thinking in a critical way and um, sort of in a negative sense of critical. They're often just trying to get at what's wrong, what's not working. And sometimes you have to get them to try to read as a little more generously. Um, And that's really how I try to get people to read in both senses, you know, um, their own work, you know, because you can learn from even things that aren't going right in your work. But also just reading for pleasure is a kind of generosity. You know, you, you have to bring something to the page or the piece and um, too often I think that, you know, you're like, the feelings I'm having, the writer's putting there. And sometimes they're your own reaction to and connection. And the best literature, I think, requires you to kind of breathe into it and give it this life. Kevin, thank you. I know you're really busy. Congratulations on oh, your Oh, thank new you book. very much. Thanks. That was poet Kevin Young. His latest book is Ardency, a chronicle of the Amistad rebels. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. The music is excerpts from Some Are More Equal. It's an improvisation performed by Paul Rutger and Hans Teuber from the CD, Oil. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at www.arts.gov. And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, NEA Jazzmaster and recent Guggenheim Fellow, Randy Weston. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. Thank you.